This is Nick Dodge and Seeger Gray with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Madison and Milwaukee are getting a combined $25 million boost in transportation funding, Governor Evers announced today. The city of Madison is slated to get more than $5 million, and Milwaukee County will get close to $20 million to boost their transit services. That's after roughly the same amount was cut from the state's public transit funding during the state budget process. The wife of GOP state senator Andre Jacques is urging people to get the COVID-19 vaccine after her husband tested positive for the virus and had to be placed on a ventilator. In a statement to Action 2 News, Renee Jacques, wife of State Senator Andre Jacques, urged people to place their trust in medical professionals who recommend the COVID-19 vaccine. Senator Andre Jacques, a Republican from De Pere, was hospitalized nearly two weeks ago and was put on a ventilator a week ago after reportedly developing COVID-induced pneumonia. As we're days away from the fall semester, the school board for Madison Schools is discussing a proposal to mandate that teachers get vaccinated. The Madison Metro School District School Board started meeting just over half an hour ago. The proposal would ask administrators to make sure vaccination statuses are verified. It would allow for exemptions on medical or religious grounds, but regular testing would be required for those who aren't vaccinated. A proposal for an alternative temporary campground for the homeless is heading to the Madison Common Council tomorrow. The proposal brought by Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway and four alders would allow the city to begin preparing an encampment at 3202 Dairy Drive on Madison's southeast side. Whether the Rindell Park encampment would continue if the proposal passes, though, remains unclear. Also headed to the council are a series of proposals to alter zoning rules to allow camping in small shelters, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. And now for your daily COVID-19 update. The seven-day average of COVID-19 cases in Wisconsin have risen to levels seen at the start of this year. According to the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, the seven-day average is 1,692. The number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 is also the highest since mid-January, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Currently, 911 Wisconsinites are hospitalized with COVID-19. Meanwhile, the seven-day average for vaccinations is slowly ticking up, though not comparable to the increase last summer. Last week, 67,893 vaccine doses were administered to Wisconsinites, the highest weekly number since mid-June. And now on to today's top stories. A new report finds that air pollution in Madison's Schenck Atwood Starkweather Yahara, or SASE, neighborhood dropped from 2019 to 2020. The study is the result of a neighborhood-led air quality survey, which SASE neighbors undertook in 2018 after the state rejected expanded air quality monitoring in the area. Our producer Jonah Chester has the details. The air quality report uses data collected from 2019 through 2020, and it's driven by 10 air quality monitors that were placed throughout the Shank Atwood Starkweather Yahara, or SASE, neighborhood in 2018. The purchase of those monitors was funded by neighborhood contributions via a GoFundMe campaign. Those monitors were installed primarily due to ongoing concerns over air pollution from the Madison Kip Corporation, which has three facilities in the neighborhood— one on Wabisa Street, one on Fair Oaks Avenue, and one on Atwood Avenue. 
Madison Kipp has been a part of the Sassy neighborhood for about 120 years. Steve Klafka has lived in the Sassy neighborhood for more than two decades. He says that conflict between area residents and the Kipp Corporation has been around at least as long as he has. You know, I, I remember 30 years of, of contention between um, Madison Kipp and the city and the DNR and neighbors and sort of trying to get the DNR and the city to enforce some reasonable limitations on what the factories could discharge into the air and how they would do it, too. In 1995, Madison Kipp failed to tell Eastside residents that it accidentally released potentially toxic gas into the neighborhood. That's according to the archives of the Wisconsin State Journal. In the 1990s and early 2000s, the state and city conducted public health surveys of areas surrounding the plants. They documented numerous cases of headaches, nose and eye irritation, nausea, and difficulty breathing, although none of those were ever formally tied back to Madison Kipp. Klafka, an air quality engineer, says the federal government has repeatedly revised standards for fine particle pollution in recent years, most recently this past winter. Fine particle pollution, which is a fraction of the size of a human hair, can cause a number of adverse health impacts. Klafka says the Department of Natural Resources has disregarded the federal government's updated guidelines. And it has never been applied to the discharges from uh, the Madison Kip factories. Under former Governor Scott Walker, Wisconsin's DNR was stripped of authority across the board, including the authority to regulate and monitor air pollutants in certain situations. Now Klafka says the DNR uses a dated standard to monitor fine particle air pollution at the Madison Kip factories. I mentioned back in 2007, the DNR evaluated uh, the factory to see if they met the air standard, and then they found they didn't, so they had the factory had to make changes. Uh, the same thing should have happened once that new fine particle standard was adopted, but it, that has not occurred because of the change in the DNR policies to make it easier on uh, industries in Wisconsin. The DNR does operate an air quality monitor at East High School, about a mile northeast of the neighborhood, but Klafka and other sassy neighbors have previously raised concerns that that monitor is too far away to accurately measure air pollution in the neighborhood. Enter the Purple Air Monitors, commercially available devices which run a couple hundred dollars each. Since 2018, the monitors have been collecting daily air quality data around the sassy neighborhood, including the fine particle contamination the DNR doesn't track. The monitor's pollution data was compiled into a report that was released today, which finds that from 2019 to 2020, overall air pollution in the sassy neighborhood dropped. Javier Martinez, an engineering PhD student at UW-Madison, is the lead author of the report. He says air quality levels in the sassy neighborhood fell well within safe standards last year. In February 2020, fine particle pollution in the area decreased by nearly 40% compared to February 2019. Overall, emissions from Madison Kip factories also declined by 32% from 2019 to 2020, or from 20.1 tons to 13.7 tons, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But Martinez says the decline in overall air pollution can't be solely chalked up to reduced emissions from Madison Kip. Other factors like reduced road traffic in the area due to the pandemic and wind direction also likely contributed to the decline. However, what we cannot say is that the reduced um, concentrations were solely due to Madison Kip. There is a great contribution because of re the reduction, and that's indeed documented on an annual basis. But we cannot say that it was solely because of them. 
It's one more data point in the ongoing community resistance to Madison Kip, which has previously come under scrutiny for its environmental impact. In 2017, the corporation agreed to pay $350,000 in penalties to the Wisconsin Department of Justice over groundwater pollution near one of its factories. At the time, the Wisconsin State Journal reported that the corporation would have to pay out that penalty fee by 2026. In 2013, the company paid $7.2 million and agreed to some environmental mitigation strategies in order to settle lawsuits brought by 33 nearby homeowners. That lawsuit alleged that Kip failed to adequately clean up a carcinogen that seeped into groundwater and air. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. A southern Wisconsin manufacturing plant is poised to close this summer, a few years after it was purchased by a private equity firm. With operations moving to Mexico, opponents of the move say it underscores the need for reform when it comes to company acquisitions. For the story, we go to Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. A Wisconsin city that has seen its share of manufacturing jobs leave is experiencing that pain again. It's prompting workers and financial reform advocates to speak out about the impact of private equity firms. Janesville-based HuffCore, which was acquired by OpenGate Capital in 2017, is scheduled to close its plant in the near future. OpenGate is moving the operations to Mexico, where workers will build specialty room dividers that have been made locally for many years. Kathy Pollock is one of the nearly 150 workers affected by the move. She says she was close to retirement when she found out, but she says it will be much harder for other staff who really need the stable pay and benefits. When we were HuffCore and owned by Mike Borden, it was a wonderful family-orientated company to work for. That all changed once we were bought out by investors. Those calling attention to the situation say not all private equity firms are bad, but they say there are too many examples of profits being placed ahead of affected communities. OpenGate did not respond to a request for comment before deadline. A bill in Congress co-sponsored by Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin would boost regulation of private equity funds. Carter Doherty of the group Americans for Financial Reform says there are scenarios where it makes sense for an outside firm to come in and take over because of its expertise. But he says the HuffCore situation doesn't illustrate that. It's about buying this company squeezing it for cash, and then moving on to the next deal. He points to another case involving OpenGate when it closed Golden Guernsey Dairy near Milwaukee in 2013. As for Janesville, the HuffCore closing comes more than a decade after it saw General Motors shutter its assembly plant there. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. The time is now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier this year, the U.S. Postal Service announced that it would be selecting Wisconsin-based Oshkosh Defense to build its next generation of electric delivery vehicles. But now the contract is the subject of a legal dispute, one that could potentially end with the project leaving Wisconsin. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Sean O'Connor, a senior reporter covering transportation startups, electric vehicles, and Tesla at The Verge. So earlier this year, the U.S. Postal Service announced it would be partnering with the Wisconsin-based Oshkosh Defense to manufacture a new fleet of electric postal vehicles. Now, from the beginning, this project has attracted some scrutiny and controversy, although early on it was pretty much just people making fun of the proposed design on Twitter. But most recently, the electric vehicle startup Workhorse has sued the USPS, accusing them of bias in their selection process and in their choosing of Oshkosh Defense for the new fleet. Now, according to your reporting, they committed, quote, 
countless errors during the bidding and selection process. And walk me through that. According to Workhorse, what were some of those errors? Well, one of the things that Workhorse really focuses in on in the lawsuit is they say that the final design that everybody sort of, you know, had so much fun poking at in February when it was unveiled is actually the design of a vehicle that Oshkosh Defense never had tested by the Postal Service. Workhorse basically accuses Oshkosh Defense of uh, essentially in the last round of the bidding process coming up with an entirely new design than the one they had been testing uh, over the last five to six years. And, uh, and in essence, you know, winning the bid with a prototype that never got tested as rigorously or at all uh, as the other competitors who were still in the running in that final round. So that's one of the biggest things that they were accusing the USPS of doing, which was, you know, sort of violating its own process that it had laid out. Um, You know, the background here is the Postal Service has spent years trying to replace the Grumman Long Life vehicles that are out on the road right now. And uh, they had set up this very detailed process uh, and solicited bids in 2015 and and spent years sort of working with these companies, multiple companies that had submitted designs, trying to run them through a battery of tests uh, and revisions as you would want, uh, you know, a government fleet to do something that is for a vehicle that is essentially in every neighborhood in the country, practically. And, you know, you want to make sure that these are going to be good vehicles. And the top level complaint is that workhorse is levied is that after all of that work, for whatever reason, the USPS sort of sidestepped the whole reasoning behind that process and awarded the contract to uh, a design that hasn't even really been tested by the Postal Service yet. What did Workhorse sink into this? What is their investment over the five-plus-year course of this contest? Uh, they definitely spent, in the in the multiple millions of dollars, uh, we know for sure that near the end of the process, uh, well, in the in the terms of federal government contracting process, uh, the end near the end in 2019, they actually went and bought out VT Hackney, which was uh, a partner of theirs in the bid. This was at a point when it was looking like the field was really winnowing to just a few a few select bidders, and a lot of the companies that had put in a lot of time, effort, and money were sort of kind of over dealing with this drawn out process that the USPS was insisting on. And so Workhorse actually paid $7 million alone just to buy out this partner that it had been working with in in pursuing this bid. So we're, we're talking multiple millions of dollars here. And have the USPS or Oshkosh, have they offered any response to the lawsuit that Workhorse has filed against them yet? Or has have they been radio silent since the case was filed? Oshkosh and the USPS, as far as their sort of communications teams go, have been uh, have been pretty quiet. Um, they haven't really come out and said too much about the lawsuit, but they have been responding in federal claims court. I mean, this has been uh, a pretty lively, if not you know, dramatic docket so far. Uh, the you know workhorse filed its complaint on June 16th. And since then, there's been a lot of back and forth. Oshkosh and USPS, essentially, their argument is mostly the same. And they kind of say that Workhorse shouldn't even be bringing this claim in federal claims court because they didn't go through all the steps that the USPS had laid out for potential losers of the bid to try to 
get some sort of rectification if they felt that they were wronged in the process of losing it. So, you know, not only did the USPS lay out this rigorous process for designing and testing and awarding uh, the contract for the new vehicle, they had also laid out a whole bunch of steps that losers could take if they wanted to try to appeal and make a, a statement that they didn't feel they were fairly treated in that uh, competition. And Workhorse did one of those initial steps with the USPS. They sort of brought their initial appeal after the award was announced in February, but then they skipped a second step, which was essentially a uh, you know one person inside the USPS uh, would have had ch- a chance to review the claims that Workhorse was making. Workhorse didn't go through that second step of the process, and then a couple months later, they filed this uh, this lawsuit in federal claims court. So Oshkosh and the USPS are not even really arguing the merits of the case just yet. They're at this point still just saying workhorse shouldn't be allowed to actually bring this case to court because they didn't follow this other part of the process. And so we're actually still stuck there (laughs) where the two sides have been sort of filing back and forth. You know, there are different interpretations of the case law. Uh, Workhorse is saying has gone as far as to say is the way that the UPS USPS structured this contest, you know, violates certain constitutional rights and so there, there is this sort of big argument that's been playing out like that in court. And that's where uh, Oshkosh and USPS have focused most of their efforts in, in trying to bat down workhorses claims. Uh, there's an oral argument that has just been scheduled for the middle of September on that. Uh, we finally got to the point where both sides have gotten all their sort of arguments out in the air. Um, and so they'll have, they'll have an oral argument in front of a judge in mid-September. And then at that point... We'll see where it goes. Either the case will move on and Workhorse will, you know, be able to argue more on the actual accusations it was making about whether or not USPS was biased in giving out this award. Uh, or perhaps the judge will say, Oshkosh and USPS, you're right. I'm dismissing this suit. And then we may be done at that point. While this case is being litigated, what happens to the actual production of the fleet? Is that on hold or does that plow ahead as previously planned? As far as we know, the money that Oshkosh was awarded um, when the contract was announced in February is still being dispersed and they are still putting it towards developing this new vehicle. Um, There are no new vehicles being built and there wasn't a plan to build them just yet. Uh, So it's not like there has been a hold put on production of the new mail truck. And in fact, this is one of the weirder aspects of the award in February and another thing that Workhorse has taken issue with, which is that instead of sort of offering up a big chunk of the potential $3 billion or more in the total contract value, the USPS only dished out about $450 million and specifically said that it's for things like developing, finishing off the development of this new vehicle to get it ready for production, which is sort of a strange thing. You would think after all of these years Oshkosh would have presented something that was ready to be built. You know, the USPS is so eager to turn over these vehicles uh, and get the old ones off the road, but they're actually still working. Oshkosh is to get its production facility ready to build these vehicles and essentially, as far as we can tell, you know, finishing some of the design aspects of it, exactly what they're finishing, we don't know. So it's kind of hard to talk about that. But no, right now, as as of now, we're we're not sure that it's putting any sort of strain on that. Um and so I think that's actually going to, you know, help Workhorse's case, at least in the near term, because they can say, hey, there's still time here. We have an option that's ready to go. It's not like you're going to have to flip off a production line if we win our argument. 
Why is the USPS so eager to replace its current fleet? Yeah, I mean, the, the mail trucks that we're all familiar with um, that are on the road right now, many of them are just well past their lives. Um, they were developed by another defense contractor, Grumman, decades ago. And and they really are, are just, we're at the point where they should be coming off the roads, not only because they're sort of woefully outdated, they're missing some of the modern safety features that you would want in a new vehicle, like uh, automatic emergency braking and things like that. They're missing some essentials like air conditioning, which is you know, what you think would be a pretty important thing to have uh, in a lot of parts of this country. And so they're outdated from that aspect. And then on top of that, they're just a total financial drain on the Postal Service because it costs them uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to, to keep these vehicles up being so late in their lives. It's just a, a, an incredible maintenance burden on the Postal Service. And then even more than all of that, the, because of the age of these vehicles, uh, and certain problems in some of the design, some of them have caught fire. Uh, Vice reported, I believe it was a year or so ago now, um, that there had been multiple reports of fires in these long life vehicles, which sort of, you know, only increase the urgency with which we want to get these vehicles off the road. It's a, you know, so they're, they're a potential danger in that respect. They're, they're not enormous vehicles by any standards, but they don't have much in the way of safety tech to prevent operators from or to help them prevent from crashing into other people or, or hitting pedestrians. Um, and then they're just sort of also just outdated of the creature comforts that we've come to u- get used to and, and could really help uh, postal workers on what have become, you know, sort of increasingly demanding routes as uh, uh, package delivery has really ticked up in recent years. Sean, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me and share your reporting. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add to the record about this area? Anything we should keep an eye on in the in the near future? Any developments you're anticipating in this ongoing legal battle? Well, I think that the big thing at the heart of this is that it's looking more and more like it's looking more and more like the Postal Service either narrowly missed or may have missed an opportunity to really embrace uh, electric vehicles in this new design. Now, Oshkosh says that the vehicle that won and the design that won will be able to be powered by gas engines and uh, an all-electric powertrain. The concern that workhorses had, but also many people outside who don't outside of the contest who have followed it closely, who don't necessarily, you know, care if workhorse won or not have brought up this point that Oshkosh doesn't have a history of developing electric vehicles, which, you know, can cause some concern as far as their inexperience with the technology and what that could mean for uh, the efficiency, the safety, durability, which is such a huge factor with these vehicles. They had set out at the beginning of this process and were trying to encourage low emission or hybrid powertrains. So there was some thinking of cleaning up the fleet in mind, but the difference between where the technology was in 2015 versus even a year or two ago, uh, as these companies were sort of deep in their bids, was was astronomical. I mean, we saw such an explosion of electric vehicle technology in the last five to six years, but the USPS wasn't flexible enough to, um, or allowing itself to be flexible enough to try to change how much it was encouraging that technology. It was also operating under, for the bulk of that time, under an administration that didn't seem to favor you know, electric vehicle technology at all. Sean, thank you so much again for joining me today and sharing your reporting. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course, Jonah, anytime. Sean O'Kane is a senior reporter covering transportation startups, electric vehicles, and Tesla for The Verge. 
You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. One correction, earlier in the show we said the seven-day average of COVID-19 vaccinations is ticking up, but is not comparable to the increase last summer. We, of course, meant last spring. Moving on, there's a lot to look forward to in the second half of the show. We get the week ahead in local government on Forward Lookout. The past isn't past remembers the Great Hawaiian Sugar Strike of 1946, and we re-examine Dane County's indoor mask mandate. But now we'll check in on the BBC World News back in a flash. The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Seeger Gray, here with my co-host, Nick Dodge. Thanks for joining us. Every Monday, we sit down with ForwardLookout.com's Brenda Conkle to scan city and county agendas to see what's up next in local government news. Conkle joined WORT's Dylan Brogan shortly before airtime today. It must be Monday because we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. Brenda, how you doing? Oh, pretty good. Good to hear. We'll start off with Dane County. As usual, 530, the Personnel and Finance Commi- Committee is meeting virtually as we speak. Uh, personnel and Finance, well, what are they up to tonight? So they had a pretty uh, long agenda, but they um, will be getting their usual uh, updates about the American Recovery Plan, which is the millions of dollars that the county got um, in the most recent federal um, funding process, and then also getting a COVID testing update from public health. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you can see, the, a lot of the cases, the breakthrough cases are happening at this point. And so um, testing is back on the rise. And at 530, the City County Homeless Issues Committee. So happening also right now is meeting virtually uh, another important committee with the city and the county. So it uh, looks like men's shelter is coming up. I mean, they're starting they're starting it over again. And, and something that you know quite a bit about the, the teeny village. Tiny house village, tiny yeah. house. I always want to call them teeny, but they're tiny. Tiny. They're... The uh, supervisor uh, Heidi Wegleitner's uh, resolution will be up there as well about purchasing a hotel and funding another tiny house village and um, other things that they want to do with some of the federal money. Um, then there are three city ordinances that they'll be considering: um, one for a mission camp, one for a tiny house village, and one uh, for a portable shelter mission, which allows uh, tiny houses. Yeah. In various places within the city. And then, yeah, they'll be getting updates about Rindall, um, the men's shelter, and COVID-19. We'll skip now to Wednesday, 5 o'clock. The Board of Public Health for Madison and Dane County is meeting virtually. Uh, another joint city-county committee. So they'll be getting a, a COVID-19 update. Important? Anything else? No, just mostly reports, reports, All reports. All right. Well, if you need to know about it, you know, it's on Wednesday, <laughs> 5 o'clock. You're right. But it'll, yeah. some important updates were probably happening, but we don't know yet. So, All right. We'll skip down to, ah, man, we have so much to go over. How about we just talk about the nine, at 9 o'clock, we have the Dane County Broadband Task Force. That's meeting virtually, like all these meetings. It's not over yet, folks. Uh, so they're talking about grant funding opportunities. So this task force is about more high-speed internet in more places. Yep, they'll also be doing some surveys um, and questions uh, for the community to find out how best to uh, serve people who are not currently getting broadband. And then they are also going to be talking with municipalities about using the ARPA funding for broadband. American Rescue Plan. 
Yep. Uh, Uncle Joe's bill. All right. 530. Health and Human Needs is meeting. Is that also Wednesday? Looks like it's on. Nope. That's Thursday. We're on Thursday. 530. Health and Human Needs. What are they talking about? Affordable housing, it looks like. Yep. They have several affordable housing projects that they'll be looking at. Um, They're also going to look at um, the extension of the hotels for um, people who are vulnerable for the singles, yeah. um, as well as um, the medical respite center that they have. Then they'll also be talking about Supervisor Wegleitner's resolution as well. Happening tonight, Monday, 7 o'clock, it's the Alcohol License Review Committee, which is a bit odd because they usually do not meet on Monday. So it's a special meeting to do what exactly? Well, their meeting in August was canceled. And so they got to get all the stuff done before the council meeting on Tuesday night. So uh, they scheduled it for the last minute. Um, they've got a whole bunch of, uh, you know, regular items yeah. that, that were should have been covered in August, um, their last August meeting. Um, but they have art pair on the square. They have um, some remodeling um, and some changes to some of the license conditions. And then, of course, they have a whole slew of new liquor licenses that people are applying for as well. Tuesday, 4.30, the Common Council Executive Committee is getting an update and some discussion items, but uh, that's followed by at 6.30, meaning the full Common Council, and they've got, looks like it's going to be a long night for the for Alders and the mayor. Yes, yeah, um, they haven't had a meeting since the first week in August, so they have a lot on their agenda. Um, so they are hearing an appeal of, from a plan commission action for conditional use at 3802 Regent Street. Um, a whole bunch of those new liquor licenses that we talked about earlier. Um, there's some more development. The Mission Camp, Tiny House Village, and Portable Shelter Mission ordinances are up for decision. There are several items about uh, Rindall Park. And then also um, they are going to perhaps rush through a decision to create a, an encampment at 3202 Dairy Drive. Um, and then in addition to that, they will be... Um, doing a bunch of TIF work. Um, they've got several TIF districts that they're going to extend so they can use that money for affordable housing when they're done. Um, $2.1 million in TIF going out uh, on the far east side. And then finally, they're going to be buying that grocery store at Truman Olson. And sounds like the uh, streetery music uh, Ooh, yeah. issue is probably going to be put to bed. And then do not forget, the mayor's capital budget will also be introduced on Tuesday, so watch for that. Yeah, a lot happening. Wednesday, 10 a.m., it's a street use staff uh, commission, and they're approving, man, a lot of outdoor events are happening. Yep. Um, some of them are the La Follette High School Homecoming Parade, the Co-op Connection, um, the Dane County Fire Chiefs Parade, the Great Midwest Marijuana Harvest Festival, um, as well as several others. So you might want to take a look at that if you're interested in upcoming events. Yes, we shall. All right. And at 4.30, the Urban Design Commission. Man, there also a um, bunch of projects. Looks like one on State Street and a couple downtown, including, um, man, Judge Doyle Square. Back on, back in the news. So that's 4.30 <laughs> on Wednesday, it looks like, right? Tuesday. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll finally complete that project. No. Yes. <laughs> but yes, 4.30, um, yeah, State Street, Pickney Street, Washington, Gammon Road, Badger Road, Seagull Road, Dutch Mill Road, Jennifer Street, Ingersoll Street. Check it all out. Forwardlookout.com is a bit, uh, good place to run that down. And we'll just wrap up uh, tonight by talking about uh, meetings that are happening with the Madison School District, including um, two tonight, uh, already in progress, both virtual. 
Yep, earlier tonight they took up the mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations. So um, that probably is of interest to anybody who's got kids in the school. Yes. Um, and then they will be getting reports from the instruction and operations work group in their second meeting, talking about their policy on communicable disease and looking at a lot of other contracts and routine business. Yep, uh, and Tuesday they're going to be the Citizens Ad Hoc uh, Committee to rename James Madison Memorial High School. Man, that, that's happening, it looks like. That's what it looks like. Um, they are reviewing the public comments that they've gotten to date, and then they will uh, review and rank a proposed list of names. Hmm. And uh, so watch the news, find out what they might have decided. All right. And if you want to learn more about uh, agendas and meetings happening this weekend, busy week for the last week of August into September here. So check it out at forwardlookout.com. Brenda, thank you so much for walking us through. You're welcome. This week on The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson remembers the Great Hawaiian Sugar Strike of 1946, a key event that led to the Hawaii of today. Sisters up and down that picket line for the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long. This Wednesday, September 1st, marks the start of the Great Hawaiian Sugar Strike of 1946. 25,000 workers struck, shutting down all but one of Hawaii's 35 sugar plantations. It was organized by grassroots Hawaiian activists who joined the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, ILWU, to win the ILWU negotiated to stop evictions from plantation housing that had destroyed previous strikes. They also had to stop hundreds of scabs shipped in from the Philippines. To do this, Hawaiians managed to get work aboard the ship carrying replacement workers. While crossing the Pacific, Hawaiians told Filipinos on board about conditions in Hawaii and the strike, leading many potential scabs to join the Union and the strike instead. This helped the Union stay united, and after six weeks, the employers capitulated to the Union's demands. This was a sweet victory for the workers over the big five companies that owned most of the plantations, a culmination of struggles that began when Captain Cook arrived in 1778. At the time, Hawaii had been a prosperous, democratic, egalitarian land, but whites brought disease that decimated the population and then displaced them from their land. In 1850, the Masters and Servant Act made indentured servitude legal. After that, the planters brought in generations of immigrant workers, starting with Chinese war refugees in 1852, then Japanese, Puerto Ricans, Filipinos, and Europeans. People of color were kept in segregated camps to keep them from cooperating. In the late 1800s, anti-Chinese sentiment grew in Hawaii, led by labor unions who claimed that the Chinese depressed wages and working conditions. In 1882, a state Chinese Exclusion Act passed. Other laws jailed immigrants for minor offenses, only releasing them if they doubled the length of their labor contract. In 1909, there was a very big strike that united Japanese and Filipinos. The strike withered when strikers were evicted from plantation housing. In 1920, workers struck again, for the first time adding maternity rights to their demands. Filipinos and Japanese had separate unions but struck together. The strikers were forced back to work when they got evicted from their homes during a flu pandemic. Many died because they couldn't get medical care. Although the strike failed, it succeeded in getting plantation owners to improve working conditions and health care. The so-called Hilo Massacre in 1938 solidified Hawaiian resolve to get their union rights. On August 1, 1938, 200 peaceful union protesters supporting striking dock workers were attacked with at least 50 wounded 
by buckshot and birdshot from police guns. There were no deaths, but no one was ever punished for the unprovoked attack. At a rally of thousands later that day, labor leader Harry Komokyu said that workers were only attacked because they were in a union. Komokyu was a man of Hawaiian Chinese ancestry, had formed the Hilo Longshoremen's Union, a multiracial democratic local of the ILWU. The union quickly spread to the major ports. He had been influenced by his participation in San Francisco's Longshoremen's and General Strikes four years before. After 1938, more unions organized in Hawaii, including the first two sugar plantations that organized in 1940 into the ILWU. After Pearl Harbor, the big five corporations had to relinquish some power to the army under martial law, but ultimately the war helped the big planters who could suppress wages out of wartime necessity, and they continued to exploit yellow peril fears. But these tactics ultimately backfired. As the war drew to a close, plantation workers turned out in overwhelming numbers to join the Union. Through negotiation, the Union won raises and back pay, but failed to get a 40-hour work week or 65 cents hourly minimum wage. After negotiations stalled, workers made history with their successful strike. Their victory showed the power of industrial organizing, multiracial unity, and a democratic union. Furthermore, in 1954, the multiracial coalition built by labor helped usher in a political revolution led by the Nisei Vets, Japanese Americans, who had taken over the state Democratic Party. Together, they ended the long reign of Republican plantation-friendly white rule. This political upheaval further undermined the Big Five and strengthened organized labor. Today, Hawaii has the nation's second-highest union density and a liberal democratic government. And that is our story for today. For the past isn't past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier this month, Public Health Madison in Dane County issued a new indoor mask mandate. The mandate has since attracted criticism from the county's performing arts community as it makes no exception for performers and musicians. As it stands, those artists will have to perform with a mask on when inside, something that may be feasible for a stage actor, but not necessarily a jazz saxophonist. For more on the issue, Friday 8 o'clock Buzz host Austin Exum spoke with Lindsay Christians, food editor and arts writer at the Capital Times, last week. Christians just authored a piece examining the arts community's complaints against the new mask mandate. So what's going on right now with the mask order and with the arts community? Well, there's a lot of confusion because I I think that many of the arts organizations who are affected did not anticipate being affected, in part because of all of the steps that I'm sure you've heard about um, folks taking in terms of this return to indoor theater. We're talking about vaccine requirements, you know, showing your vax card before you can get into a show um, or showing a, a COVID test that's negative within the last 72 hours. There are a lot of arts organizations that have been very, very proactive in terms of their audience as well as their performers 
trying to really make sure that everybody is going to be as safe as possible. So when the new mask order came down and they realized that, oh, it's okay if you go into a bar or a restaurant and you take your mask off for a couple of hours while you have dinner with friends or around people you don't know, there's no vaccine requirement there. But if you go into, you know, the Overture Center Playhouse where everyone is required to be vaccinated, the actor in front of you who's essentially in a one or two person play can't take their mask off that that scene is too dangerous. It just seemed really, it seemed just discriminatory, I think, to many of them, but also it just was unexpected. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. There, there's been a lot of uh, confusion and a lot of frustration in the past week. And I think that, that folks maybe started out more hopeful than they currently are about exemption possibilities. If I remember correctly, the previous mask order did have an exemption, um, if not a minor one, um, for some performing arts, and that was left out of this one. Um, was there any comment on that, like by public health? Did they address that at all? So that's kind of interesting. So I, I went back and I looked in public, the public health order 16, which was issued on April 29th, and it went into effect in early May of this year. Uh, exception nine says, when actively playing a wind instrument that has a fabric bell cover or similar cover that acts as a face covering over the instrument, as long as individuals are spaced at least six feet apart at all times. Functionally, we also saw a lot of performance where like all of your actors are vaccinated and they're performing for an audience that is spaced out and in masks, right? So we saw Forward Theater doing something like that in the spring, for example. American Players Theater, which is outside of Dane County, also did a bit of that. So what's interesting here is that that exemption is now removed. And one of the biggest effects for that is that it affects high school and middle school band. So like thousands of students who would be rehearsing in Dane County are not actually legally able to have band practice right now. Um, So that's been an issue on, on the education level. That exception, I did ask about public health about it. I was like, you know, there, there was an exception. Public health wrote back and said, we have never exempted performers in any of our orders, and there are no exceptions in the order for removing masks to play instruments or sing. So that's pretty unequivocal in, in their response. Uh, I don't remember exactly when this order expires, but uh, in your article you mentioned that all of these performing arts leaders and these companies, like they have contracts out for their upcoming like performances, and if this mask mandate were to end or possibly get extended with the same things um, without like an exemption made, like what what would happen then? It's going to vary by individual company. So this mask order expires on September 16th. For example, Midsummer Night's Dream that the Madison Ballet is doing in the Capitol Theater uh, is set to open on the 17th. So they'd already be well they are already in rehearsals, but they'd be well into like dress rehearsals and everything else. They'd have to have some kind of a plan, right? They had initially planned to have the Wisconsin Chamber Orchestra and uh, I think some sopranos and a small chorus as part of the musical portion of that. They would need to have another, if they don't get an exemption, they'd need to have another plan in place before they could open that show. Because as you said, there are contracts out there selling tickets to these kinds of things. What people are going to do is going to sort of vary by company, though. I would imagine that if the mask order is extended past the 16th, I don't know how the Madison Symphony would proceed with, it. for example, its performance of the Beethoven Ninth Symphony. That's a 160-person chorus on the stage at Overture Hall. You can have people in masks. But again, it, it comes back to how is that different than you know going into a restaurant you know, where there is no vaccine requirement, you know, where there, where there aren't these kinds of strictures. 
it feels, I think, a little a bit like a double standard to folks outside of the question of how dangerous is the Delta variant and what kind of steps are we taking to protect ourselves and our community? Yeah, right? I, it, it seems like sort of two different conversations, right? Has public health addressed this? Have they responded? Yeah. Well, the response is basically the Delta variant is dangerous and communicable, right? So it says, we are now contending with the Delta variant, which is the dominant strain of the virus in Dane County. The Delta variant is at least two times more infectious than previous variants. In mid-June 2021, shortly after the last order expired, 1% of sequence samples were the Delta variant. This week, that number is 94%. That does not address the question that I asked right about why there was an exception made for bars and restaurants and there was not one made for performers in a fully vaccinated masked audience where you know your cast and crew are are vaccinated right they didn't really address that and there's a lot of discussion and you know um hypothesizing that maybe it's due to like the tavern league or the power of restaurants at, you know, more collectively which you know, people on the restaurant side will argue that they, they haven't had a lot of power in terms of these things either in the past year and a half. So that gets very quickly, I think, uh, thorny and complicated. But I, I, I do, I can see how it could be a lot harder to say, oh, restaurants, we're going to knock you back down to this capacity and we're going to make these additional mask rules. And the, the blowback that you might get from that versus the blowback that you might get from, you know, an arts, arts organization, arts organization. I, I will say I'm starting to see places cancel. Stage Q has canceled its production of Laced, which was set to open on September 24th. Zach Stowe is the president of Stage Q, and he had a, issued a press release, and in it he said, exemptions are being made to keep businesses open across different industries, but the arts, which have been shut down for 15 months, are not allowed the same consideration by Dane County. The inconsistency on this issue is starting to take its toll. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you, Lindsay, for joining us this morning and helping shed light on on this issue. Absolutely. Thank you. That was food editor and arts writer at the Capital Times, Lindsay Christians, talking about her article, Frustrated Madison Arts Leaders Blast Inconsistent Mask Order. On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson checks out two new movies, Sweet Girl, a fast-paced action flick starring Jason Momoa with an unbelievable ending, and A Private War, a biopic about American war correspondent Mary Colvin, who did most of her reporting from the Middle East. My wife was supposed to start a new medication. The company that makes the drug pulled it off the market. Paying competitors to shell generic brands of drugs? That is immoral. That was lit from the trailer for Sweet Girl by first-time director Brian Andrew Mendoza. This is a violent, predictable revenge movie with a weird twist two-thirds of the way through that is just unbelievable. Which is too bad because the cast is solid with lead Jason Momoa, Aquaman, as Ray Cooper, a blue-collar man, out for revenge, and Isabella Merced from Dora and the Lost City of Gold, as his critical but loyal daughter, Rachel. The movie starts in the middle. Ray is about to jump off Pittsburgh's PNC Park, home stadium of the Pittsburgh Pirates, into the Allegheny River, hundreds of feet below. We flash back several years and see Ray with his happy family, his spouse Amanda, Adria Aryunha, and daughter. All too quickly, though, Amanda comes down with incurable cancer. But wait, there is a cure. A new drug, the evil pharmaceutical CEO, Simon Keeley, Justin Bartha, pulls from the market to raise its price. Grief-stricken, Ray calls into a TV show Keeley is on 
and says, If she dies, I will hunt you down and kill you with my bare hands. Amanda dies and he follows through. Ray briefly partners up with an investigative reporter who wants to use his story as a sympathetic intro into his expose of Keeley's company. But this quickly ends when Ray and the reporter are attacked by pharma thugs. The reporter is killed and Ray suffers a knife wound, all in front of his daughter, who followed Ray to the subway meeting. Ray and daughter were obviously in good shape. They had become obsessed with the gym, and Ray spends a lot of time plotting out a conspiracy theory of big pharma that the reporter left behind. But the way he dispatches professional thugs and assassins, not to mention chase scenes on foot and by car, stretches credulity. The last third in its twist are unbelievable. Sadly, I can't recommend this movie that is amazingly currently number one on Netflix. Now for a much different film that seems very timely, a woman-centered story. I want people to know your story. You have a God-given talent for making people stop and care. That was a clip from the trailer for Private War, the 2018 film directed by Matthew Heinemann. It's available on Netflix. The movie is about the life and tragic death of war correspondent Marie Colvin in a great role by Rosamund Pike. An American, Colvin wrote for the independent London Sunday Times for 25 years until 2012. She covered conflicts in East Timor, Sri Lanka, Iraq, and Libya. The movie is based on an article by Vanity Fair writer Marie Brenner. People should know going in that there are scenes of graphic violence and suffering, especially of children. The film reveals war's dirty little secret. Most of its victims are civilians, mostly by air. She was, by the film's account, an obsessive, driven woman, both in the field and back home. She suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, drank excessively, was a heavy smoker, and had several lovers. But she was also a great writer, who could make her audience care about people half a world away. She was addicted to the adrenaline rush of being at the center of the conflict. The film starts and ends in Homs, Syria. The movie takes us through some key events going back to Sri Lanka in 2001, where she tragically lost an eye, when the Tamil rebels' raid on government troops backfires. We witness her tough recovery at home and her determination to get back into the field. Along the way, she picks up a young photographer who becomes a partner and friend, Paul Conroy, well played by Jamie Doran. Conroy is reportedly a character in his own right. Toward the end of the film, there's a brief role for the always exceptional Stanley Tucci as wealthy businessman Tony Shaw. Colvin seems to have a chance at a real serious relationship, but she's too anxious to get back to work where she meets her untimely end in Hums. A private war is well worth watching to remind us of the suffering of civilians in war zones, especially as we see Afghanistan again taken over by the Taliban. The main focus is on those lucky few who get to the airport without any context on what brought them there. We need more reporters with the courage of Colvin and Conroy, even as we work for a better world where their work will be obsolete. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, Dylan Brogan, and the 8 o'clock buzzes Austin Exum. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Victor Calzoni engineered the show. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. And I'm your host, Seeger Gray. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, the Access Hour. Good night. <laughs>